Can I ask you a question? Man, you're a, you're the educator today. Go ahead. Well, how do you live undeterred as a father? Well, you know, you guys may not be aware of this, but I was your age once. Um, you've never been my age, so it's hard for you to understand what it's like to be an adult. Back when um, the wheel was made. Back in the Civil War, as you guys always say, when fire was invented. No, um, you know, I guess it just comes as you get older, you kind of get a little bit more bulletproof because you... As the old, older you get, the, the higher the probability that bad stuff's going to happen. Um, when you're younger, you have, um, you know, you bury pets and grandparents. Uh, as you get older, you start going to more funerals and less weddings. And so at 54 years old, I'm not saying that there's nothing that can happen that I couldn't handle. But I, I really do believe that. There really is nothing that I can't handle after what I've been through. Um, it's kind of hard to have a bad day when you, when you lose a child. Um, and, uh, when things do happen to me that, that are uncomfortable or I don't like, I keep going back to that moment on October 4th, 2016, when we got the call that Seth had died and, um, I compare it to that pain I had and, you know, I, it's hard for me to say that I could ever have anything worse. I honestly can think of a few things that, that would add to that suffering and agony, but I don't know if anything could ever be worse than that day. So living undeterred to me is taking the experiences you've had in life and building on those to make you a stronger person. I'm Steve Grant. I live in Greenville, South Carolina, and I'm married to Kathy. And I had two sons. Uh, and uh, the, the, the coincidence obviously here is I've lost both my sons to uh, accidental drug overdoses over the last 15 years. Uh, Christopher uh, nearly 15 years ago and Kelly nearly 10 years ago. How did you navigate through all this uncharted territory? I had you as a, as a quote role model. I had you as a template. I read your book and thought, I read your book thinking if this guy can do it, I sure in hell can do it. So, I mean, who, who, how did you get through all this when this was all new stuff back in the day when Chris and Kelly passed away? You know, after uh, doing the things that I did and starting a foundation and, uh, you know, dealing with uh, two sons dying of, of accidental drug overdoses, you know, I did kind of, I, I do talk a lot about the fact that I was ahead of my time. And, and uh, you know, 15 years ago when, uh, when Chris was, and then you got to go back eight years of when it really started. So we're talking back going 23 years almost when things when he when he started showing uh signs of being dependent upon alcohol or drugs uh that was a long time ago and then uh -huh. you know, when he died in in 2005 uh, you know I, I didn't really reflect on it too much but um i didn't really know anybody who had died of a drug overdose uh, right. and i really didn't know where to go to help myself before that happened because eight years was going on and we did a lot of things we did five five rehab facilities uh a boarding school uh numerous things and it wasn't that i wasn't listening to other people but i was hearing some of the things they were suggesting but it wasn't uh, i think there's a tremendous more help there help there is now but you know then you go to 2010 and then lose my other son five years later to a heroin overdose and, and and still still kind of reflect that the only person I really know that's died of a drug overdose is his brother. And right. and and then all of a sudden, you know, it kind of it kind of hits you that um, going forward, here are all these 
all these young young people, uh, girls and guys, are are dying of accidental drug overdoses. And of course, now we we're getting to the point where we're peaking at about eighty thousand people a year, uh, young people that are dying of drug overdoses. Um, I think that's where they are now, and it's it's still on the rise, and it's 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 a popular thing. And it's it's terrible that you have to say that it's popular. Uh, but but I did come across I did come along at a time when I really didn't know anyone other than my two sons for a period of time who had died of accidental drug overdoses. And I love the fact you said you didn't view yourself as a victim. That it was that's one question I was going to ask you, to, and that obviously took some time because you did view yourself as a victim for a long time. Um, was there a certain point in time you just had an I had an epiphany mo- moment myself, Danielle? Did you have that? Yeah, I've had several of them. It's funny because I seem to have one about every couple of years since I realized um, that, well, I found, I think the biggest moment for me was um, when I when I got my aerospace engineering job. See, I thought that was going to fix me. And, and it's funny because um, my dad is also an engineer and his dad is an engineer or was an engineer. He passed away last year. Um, and, and the men in my family are, they, you know, gravitate towards engineering. And, and I think that that was partially a way for me to get my dad to be proud of me. Um, and like, oh, this will make my parents love me. And, and it didn't. But when I was, uh, you know, deep into my engineering career, um, I found myself feeling exactly how I used to feel when I was a prostitute. And hmm. I asked myself, why the hell am I feeling like a piece of trash why and and that's when i realized this is something in me happening um because i'm not in the streets anymore i'm not committing crimes i'm living a good life you know per society's definition but i still feel like trash and and that's when i and to be quite honest jeff i i became very suicidal and and I, I was just ready to end it. And I started Googling um, in YouTube. I, I remember actually putting in, why do I want to die? Because if you were looking at my life, I had, you know, a nice car. I had a home that was paid off. Um, you know, I had the dream that everybody, you know, thought. But I just felt miserable inside. And, and I thought that getting all of those things, you know, I had had them before the wrong way with selling drugs and prostitution. I've made money plenty of times in my life. But... I always felt unfulfilled and I thought this would make me feel fulfilled. It didn't. And and that was the moment where I was like, what the hell? And, and so I just started researching, why do I want to die? And that led me to um, some YouTubers that were, um, you know, some spiritual gurus and um, Eckhart Tolle, Sadhguru, Russell Brand, who mm. I, you know, Russell Brand, I remember from like movies like, you know, get him to the Greek and yeah. Um, <laughs> The, you know, I didn't even know that he had gotten clean and sober and was, you know, being sort of a spiritual teacher now. Um, but so really just seeing these really sensitive men, um, that pulled me out of my funk. Um, those were the things that I needed um, to hear from a man. And, and just seeing that, that, that gave me so much hope. And it was, there was a lot of accountability and, and that that realized, you know, that helped me realize that I had to be responsible for my happiness, but it was presented to me in a way that um, sort of maybe, I don't know if this is the right way to say, but almost like filled a void 
that I had with my dad, having it presented in these compassionate, gentle men, you know? And, and that really, that was a game changer for me. I guess I wanted to move on to, and I know that you and I have talked at length about, and that's uh, January 19th, almost 28 years ago, 1993, um, was a very important day for you personally, Kenyon, and uh, I, myself as well. My dad was there that day. Why don't you talk a little bit about Chris Street and what Chris meant for you and to you and how you've honored him. And uh, and I'll tell you a little bit of background, some things that have happened recently with, with, uh, with me reaching out to Mike as well. Yeah, no, uh, Chris was a big reason for my coming to the University of Iowa. He was my host and I actually got to go to class with him. And funny story real quick is we were in class and it was like an English lit class. And some people may know the story, but the, the professor asked a question and I'm and I end up being an English major. But uh, they asked a question and nobody raised their hand. So, I, you know, here's this high school senior. I raised my hand <laughs> and, and kind of give my two cents. Uh, to what the, the professor had asked. And, and as we were leaving the class that day, Chris was like, dude, well, you can't be embarrassing me like that. You know, you're, you're just a high school senior or whatever. So really <laughs> that was kind of that solidifying moment that he and I really kind of bonded. And actually the breakfast, uh, after the breakfast, before I left to go back to Michigan, he said, I'll see you in the fall, won't I? And I was like, yeah. So, so he knew after my visit that I was coming here. But, you know, that night, uh, he, he was a he was a big brother to me. Um, pretty much spent all my time with him uh, leading up to the season. He really showed me what it took and how hard I had to work just to get on the floor at Iowa. Um, even coming in that year, we had a veteran team, but I knew I'd have an opportunity to get a lot of minutes if I did what I needed to do in the preseason. And, and so he was a, a big catalyst for that for me and showing me how to grind day in and day out and you know, if it wasn't for me, I pro if it wasn't for him, I probably would have been really lost that first semester. But but he was he was he was that big brother who would always put his arm around me. And so he and I really we bonded that night um, of the accident. We're at a you know team dinner, and I had actually rode to the restaurant with Chris and and Kim and James Winters and I. We all rode together, but Chris and Kim had a class they had to get to, which is why they were in the car and James and I weren't. And so hmm. you know it was pretty much by the luck of scheduling that I wasn't in that car accident as well and, and, and James. And so who knows what would have happened. But what I take from that is, you know, one thing I did find out, you know, and I think I realized it about two years ago is um, that sat with me more than I knew. And mm -hmm. two years ago, I really had to deal with the fact that I never grieved losing him back then. It was kind of like, we had to get back to business, even though we took mm -hmm. time off. Um, I was sitting at Mike and Patty's uh, dinner table. Actually, I stopped by for lunch one day when I was in the area. You know, I, I really broke down. I was like, you know, I, I realized that I never really grieved his death. And though he, he meant a lot to a lot of people and he's been honored in so many ways. Um, that was one of the things that kind of hit me a couple of years ago. And I really had to deal with these feelings because at that time I realized like I'd been mad at God for so long, you know, mm -hmm. cause I, it's like, you know, we always ask why him or why her, 
And so for me, uh, it, it kind of came full circle, but it was Mike and Patty that really helped me get past that and, and, and understand it and grieve. And, you know, since then it's been, you know, obviously uh, I love them, you know, to death and Mike and Patty still texting stuff all the time, but yeah, it was, uh, it was very traumatic for me. And I just, you know, all these years later, never dealt with it. So. Yeah, I think we, we learn the greatest lessons in life at the deepest and darkest of times. And I don't mean to, to, to gloss over that for a lot of the, the journeys that a lot of us have been thrust into. We didn't ask for it. Right. We didn't say we want to have these challenges, these life-altering events that, that can really impact our hearts. But that's life. Mm-hmm. And what we realize is that it's a lot more fragile than we ever anticipated. And we often get these lessons at young ages, but unfortunately they don't bloom till, till much later on. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up, I grew up right outside of New York City in Northern New Jersey. My father was a financial advisor. My mother was a school teacher who taught something called ESL, which is English as a second language. They would always give me this advice and this guidance. And you know, you're a young kid, like, oh, whatever, I don't wanna hear about it. But what they were doing is they were planting seeds inside of me that would later bloom that I wouldn't understand until that happened. So the year was 1996. I just graduated from the University of Delaware. We like to call it the ass kicking chicken down there, not the fighting blue ones. <laughs> and I graduate and I'm standing on the football field in this beautiful blue cap and gown. And Maya Angelou is giving her amazing commencement speech. And my mom and dad come walking down and my dad gives me that little fist sign. My dad's from the Bronx. I'll clean his language up. And he goes, nice job, buddy. I'm like, dad, king has arrived, man. He goes, uh, sure. what, what do you want to do now? That's easy, Dad. I want to be a financial advisor. I want to join your practice. And my father looked me dead in the eyes. And he said, there's no bleeping chance that that's going to happen. And I was angry. And I was upset. There we go. I was angry. And I was pissed. And I was, I was all annoyed. But he was giving me one of the greatest lessons in life. There's no free lunches. You go out and earn it. Go get licensed. Figure it out on your own. If it becomes your passion, your craft, your career. We'll talk in a few years. So as we were kind of talking about before we went on air, the financial advising community is a lot broader than most people realize. There's so many different levels of it that compact, that allow advisors to be able to have the proper information that they could do it's in the best interest of a client. So in the late 90s, 1996, 97, mm-hmm. I became what's called a wholesaler. A wholesaler is someone who works for a company that manufactures a 401k, right. a mutual right. fund, an annuity. I can go right down the list. And they'll go meet with mm-hmm. financial advisors, as you know well, and try to show you why you should right. use that in your plan for certain clients, whatnot. The reason that I did that was because it allowed me to go yeah. get licensed, just like everybody else, get right. all different initials after my name. But it gave me that opportunity to do that, to learn the business and see if it was a craft of mine. And I remember right before I started, my dad sat down with me. And he said, there's three things I want to go over with you. I said, yeah. He goes, one, if you don't believe in the product or a family member doesn't own Mm. it, you don't sell it. You lose the battle to win the war. It's about the client's best interest. I said, yeah, dad. He said, number two, always be honest. Eventually, if you're not, it's going to come full circle. You're not going to be able to put your head on a pillow and sleep at night and you'll lose trust from people. Always be honest, whether it's good or bad. I said, yeah. He said, number three, you got a soccer scholarship to college. Take that work ethic and incorporate it into this, and there's no limits on what you can do. And I started my career. 
What is your why? What what drives Antarctic Mike to do the things that you do? Well, I'll answer that question with a story. Yeah. So um, about six years ago, I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I had a whole series of speaking engagements like Monday through Friday. So I'm in a speaking engagement on a Monday morning, and um, there's a guy in the group by the name of John Strasser. John is a CEO of a Cincinnati-based construction company called Valley Interiors. So John hears me speak, and he knew I was going to be in town all week. So he says, hey, can you do me a favor? Can, can I take you to dinner? I said, sure. Um, so he says, stop by my office before we go out to eat, and we'll go from my office, and we'll go to dinner. I said, sure. So I stopped by his office. Keep in mind, it's almost dark. It's 5 o'clock in January in Cincinnati. It's snowing. Okay, it's a dreary, snowy, cold, dark day in Cincinnati. So I go by his office. And John says, hey, there's three guys in the back room, three construction workers that just finished their day. They're tired. They're beat up. But can you take 10 minutes and give them an overview of what I heard today? I said, sure. So I go to the mm. back room and I gave a 10 minute overview of what I'd spent the day on. And I didn't really think anything about it. And I didn't know who these three guys were. So John and I go to dinner and the week goes on and I come home. John calls me the following week and he says, you know, that 10 minutes you spent with my three of my guys? I said, yeah. He goes, you don't realize this, but that changed the life of one of those three guys. And I'm like, well, I have mm -hmm. to hear this story. So he goes, one of those three guys was a guy named Jared Dieselberg. Jared is a drywall. I guess he specializes in ceilings. I didn't know construction guys can specialize in walls, floors, ceilings, yeah. but Jared is this guy that hangs upside down like a monkey all day on wires and ropes. And he, he works on ceilings. And, um, he said, it really inspired Jared. And I said, well, how did it change his life? And he said, well, Jared signed up to run what's called the Flying Pig Half Marathon. Oh, this wow. is one of the largest half marathons in the United States. I mean, this is like 90,000 people do this. I mean, it takes over the whole city of Cincinnati for like a weekend, right? And so I said, oh, this is pretty inspiring. Can you send me his phone number? I want to call him and hear the story firsthand. He goes, sure. So he sends me his phone number and I get the guy on the phone. And Jared goes, yeah, you know, I heard your story and I figured, you know what, if you could change your life, I could change mine. Right. And I said, well, how'd you change your life? He said, well, I'm not really a runner. I committed to a, to a half marathon before I even owned a pair of running shoes. Mm -hmm. And Jared said, I'm a little bit overweight. I'm not in very good shape and I'm a manager, but I have a real bad temper. I'm not real patient with my guys. And he said, since I signed up for this thing, I started running and he said, now all of a sudden I'm losing weight and I'm feeling better about myself. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. He goes, well, it doesn't stop there. Now I'm finding that I'm more patient with my crew and I'm mm. listening to that. And I'm like, wow, okay, so now it's affecting his job. Right. And then he goes, it doesn't stop there. He said, now it's affecting my marriage. And I'm like, mm. what now? Now I'm really leaning in, right? And I'm right. like, I got to hear this one. He goes, <laughs> Christina, my wife and I have been separated for months. We haven't spoken to each other in many months. Hmm. Since I started running, it gave us something to talk about because Christina likes to run. So right. now we're running together and we're actually talking for the first time in months. I mean, I'm on the phone. I'm crying, right? I mean, I'm like, this is moving story, right? So I said to Jared, I'm coming to Cincinnati. I'm going to run that flying pig with you oh, cool. and John. And I cool. normally wouldn't go to Cincinnati to run this. So I fly to Cincinnati and, and Jared and I run the whole thing together, hand in hand, the entire 13 miles. And um, about a week after the race, 
Jared calls me. Christina and I have moved back in together. I mean, their relationship is now right. taken off again. Yeah. And Christina writes like a year in review, like on her Facebook page. And like, here are the highlights of the year. And the big highlight of that particular year was the rebuilding of her marriage hmm. with Jared. And today, to this very day, they're still married. Um, they're friends of mine. I've met Christina since then. And, you know, that story just reminds me of why I do what I do. I mean, it's it impacts people. And I get emails and phone calls and things years after the fact. Hey, that one picture you showed me, that yeah. one story you told me, I yeah. still think about it. I still use it. So your podcast you do, uh, can you yes. tell us a little bit about how long you've been doing it? Sure. What type of people are you looking for and what's kind of the, the sure. most, um, you know, What's, what's inspirational about your podcast? Why should people listen and watch your Ooh, podcast? Good question. Okay. So I'll go start with my background a little bit. My background is uh, I'm a disability navigator and also live stream at night, which means that I work with individuals with disabilities to move forward in their lives, uh, find opportunity and employment and whatnot. And I really uh, enjoy that. And I across all the years of working in social services and with different individuals with different... Uh, barriers to their livelihood and opportunity I really felt like I got everyone felt so isolated everyone felt so alone everyone felt so frustrated mm -hmm. and then when COVID hit it, it just right everything just multiplied and I think even in that year of 2020 I too felt a little bit isolated being an extrovert being someone that really enjoys being around people and and being in my community and I felt a little isolated I'm like what can I do and how can I share how can I interact with other people how can I get other people to interact with those and how can I advocate for all this isolation and all this trauma and all this depression and all this anxiety that right. people are feeling all this right. all these overwhelming sensations that people have never really ex been exposed to or even allowed themselves to feel and when we're confined when we are, well, it quarantined, you really have to right. come to terms with a lot. Yeah, there's, you there's, do. there's a, a lack of escape. So in that, I found the time to build the live stream show. And really, that was to highlight the, the voices of other individuals, again, with their trauma, their stories of trauma, their stories of their mental health and all the barriers that come with that and all the difficult struggles that they go through and how can we help each other? How can we say, you know what, I've been through that too and you're not alone, it's happened to me too or hey, that sounds kind of like what I've been through. And how can we just continue to connect on a more human level rather than the, the superficial level in that sense? Anyway, I just think being human is ripe with being having challenges and society calls them mental illnesses. I, I tend to think it's just being human. Yeah. I mean, listen, we're all imperfect beings. And so from that place of imperfection, there are going to be challenges. And part of our work or our work on this plane is to work through those challenges, is to try to transcend and transform. So we all have work to do. And the brain has been evolving over millions of years. It used to be that we were trying to outrun big animals. Now we don't have right. to outrun big animals anymore, but it can feel that way, right? It can right. feel that way when we're 
alone and scared or there's been a tragedy that the fear comes over us and how do we try to control it? And so we do lose ourselves into into our mental unhealth or whatever it is that you want to call it because we get lost in the mind. So just losing ourselves in the mind is an unhealthy experience because we're not present with our feelings anymore. We're not present with our emotions. That is who we really are. The thoughts, some of those were dropped into us as beliefs, right? Like, Jeff, Mm. you're supposed to be this type of person or you're not supposed to be this type of person. John, you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a writer. You're not going to be an artist. You know, that stuff gets dropped into us. We adapt it. We make it our own. And then we forget that they weren't, it wasn't even ours to begin with. What's the last one you have? Well, I've got two. Oh, right yeah. Um, so I guess we got to see see this, which you showed me this earlier. This is one of our favorite pieces of equipment. And he's not just he's not just a teddy bear. This is it's... called the Boo Buddy Bear. And um, the idea behind him is I'm not going to turn him on because he'll have to calibrate and do all this well, stuff. Well, I don't want you long. to turn him on anyway. So. Yeah. So anyway, what he does, he's got um, fairly sophisticated electronics in him. He has an electromagnetic field detector, just very much like this without the audible signal. If he detects EM changes around him, like if a child spirit were to come up and, and grab his hands, you'd see his paws light up. He, so I thought you were kidding me. His name is really Boo. He's really a... a Boo, Boo Buddy is what he's called. But the manufacturer calls him Boo Buddy. Yeah, we call him Hal. No, I just made it up. No, it's just Boo Buddy is what they call him. You ever, you ever thought about talking to somebody like a therapist or something? Or? Um, I thought I was. Oh. No, you're, you're, uh, ta- you're talking yeah, to yeah, right, you're right. talking to many people. You just yeah. can't see them. That's exactly um, right. So anyway, so he's Boobody, got that. Boobody tracks kids. Well, yeah, that that's. But I always emphasize. Can I hold him while I get absolutely. possessed or something? No, 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 not there. No, I'm just kidding. No, you should be fine. Should be fine. Yeah, this is Boobuddy. Pretty cute. Yeah, and so he's, he's got also sensors got, in here. He's also got a sensor in him that detects motion, like vibration. Have you had a button to so, make him talk right now? I punch you. <laughs> Yeah, no, I would. Here, you can take no, but back. One thing I love about it, you turn him on and he, he calibrates, he baselines to the environment, okay? Hmm. EM, everything. And then he'll start talking. He'll say, Hi, I'm Boo Buddy. What's your name? And he waits 30 seconds. He says all these different things. Asks Does he record too? No. Oh. But I'm, I'm getting to that real quick. Um, he'll do things like have kids start to sing their ABCs or count. We always put a digital voice recorder by this bear right next to him. And you In catch fact, stuff. Yeah, I put, yes. I'll put one like this right next to him. Okay, and the reason we do that, obviously, for example, the best recorded audio we've ever had of a child spirit interacting with this bear was at a residential case in Mount Vernon. One thing the buddy does is he says, count with me. And then he says, one, two, three, four, and he stops. We recorded the voice plain as day of a little kid saying five on the recorder after this bear stopped at four. You know how it's, like heightened of right now it's just I'll incredible. scare. I mean, if somebody scared me right now, I would have a heart attack. I am mm. so every hair standing up on my arm. It's wild. Just being around this stuff is, is yeah. not creepy. It's just like it's intriguing to me. I'm not. I'm not like. Um, to me, it's just it's hard to explain. It's, it's hard thrilling. to explain. I, I'm I'm absolutely excited to go on an investigation, an overnight investigation with a professional, with mm-hmm. with you and your team, mm-hmm. just to not add any value, but just to kind of 
take in the information. You know, if nothing else, just to immerse yourself in the ambience of a location like do you, that. Do you allow non-team members mean, to go on investigations with you? Well, if if it's a team, if it's a team event like a team bonding event, typically no, but. Um, like a brother? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We could have a, a case where it's just just you and me, or you and me and somebody else. And we else don't have to go to the haunted, most haunted house. We can just go to you know. Uh, Edinburgh's a great shot. It's just right down the road. It's a really active location. At times, it's always hit and miss. I've done two solo overnights at Edinburgh Manor. Nobody but me. One of them was really, really amazing. The other one was bland. It was just eerily quiet. Almost like there was just there just was no energy going on. So you don't know. It's hit and miss. Lay it on me. I'm I'm in the middle of a football game. I'm busy. Uh, you got something going on. Okay, big deal. I'm gonna hit pause. Okay, Roman, what do you want to talk about? Uh, I want to tell you that um, I've been having a lot of thoughts and I'm gay. Um, give me a hug, brother. I love you. Um, I am honored and lucky to have a son that had the courage uh, to make me the first person that he told. And your older brother, Seth, is so freaking proud of you, man. He is. He's so proud of you. Um, gay. Okay. Wow. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a heter I'm a heterosexual male. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I need a lot of learning to do. Um, when you told me that you were gay, and for people watching this, our immediate circle of friends, when this gets on social media, some probably are going to say, well, I always knew, Jeff, but I didn't want to tell you. <laughs> like it was a disease or something. Um, you're not a werewolf, Roman. I'm, I'm not worried about you. Yeah. So, um, But it's like I have friends that are probably going to reach out to me saying, well, Jeff, I didn't want to say anything. It's like, okay, that's stigma number one. We need to start breaking down these ridiculous stigmas imposed by society, imposed by religion, imposed by politics. Ridiculous stigmas. Um, this is my son. He's a human being. He's not a voter, or he's not a vote. Um, he's not a, 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 a divine um, uh, intervention here. Uh, he's brought to me for one simple reason, and that's to make me a better person. And I am an advocate or a big fan of, Van, of Victor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about. Yeah. And he talked about the purpose of life. What's your meaning in life? And my meaning in life is to learn from those people in my life and to give you help in finding your meaning. Mm. That That's my meaning. And as a dad, when you came to me and said, Dad, I'm gay, what's the first thing I said to you? I mean, everybody listening is probably wondering, okay, Jeff, what's the first thing you said? What did I first, what's the first thing I said? I love you. What's the second thing I said? Oh, my bird. I you, think, you think I can remember eight months ago? I do. I, you know what I said? I what? said, Roman, it's okay. Don't don't label yourself right mm -hmm. now. It's something you may outgrow. Yeah. I mean, how ignorant. <laughs> I got to thinking how, how terrible of a thing for me to say as a dad. Like you have poison ivy. It's like, you know, Roman, just uh, wipe this off. Mm -hmm. your, your gayness will go away. Yeah. You'll, you'll get back to normal. Bullshit. I'll play the bullshit card. Um, that is your normal, dude, and I'm, I'm freaking proud of you, man. And when I say this number, it's going to shock my listeners, but you have like 3.5 million, I mean, million people <laughs> that follow you on your lifeology journey. Um, yeah. And that that's that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You know, I'm so humbled by that. I once was on a, a guest on someone's show, and they're like, James, how does that feel to have that many people uh, listen to you? And I was like, you know, it's... 
it's such an abstract number because when I'm in studio or I'm, I'm at home right now, but if, if you know, I don't see those people. And so obviously right. I could literally see them. It'd be a different story, but it is very humbling. And so I love to talk to, I get to meet so many people like you and just uh, hear people's story. And I just kind of get lost in the interview process. And then I'm like, oh yeah, other people are listening to that as well. <laughs> Tell me how you, how you made the jump from private practice to this lifeology. You know, ever since I was a child, I was just had a proclivity that people would just come and talk to me. Like my little friends would would come up to me and ask me questions and or tell me their their struggles, and it's always just a natural inclination for me. But the funny thing was, was I I wanted to be a musician, or I am a musician. But when I went to undergrad, I wanted to be a geneticist. I wanted to cure cancer, hmm. and I had all these this genetic background. And then from there, I got a really big music scholarship and transitioned into uh, to, to music. And then from there, I transitioned into psychology and Spanish with a music minor. So all over the place. Because we all have all have interests, and I had quite a few. Uh, so with that, I, I took the easy way out, I suppose, when it came to graduate school. I decided to, instead of going to um, the new school and to do film and, and acting, because I did a lot of that when I was younger, I thought, well, let me do something to fall back on. So I decided to uh, go to graduate school to become a psychologist or a psychotherapist. Did that. Um, and the older I became, I found that I was pretty good at it. Ironically, though, in my graduate school, except for one of my professors who was like a grandma to me, everyone thought I needed to change my career, my field. I wasn't good at it. I wouldn't be successful. Hmm. And it was just this whole thing of, James, you know, you're you're not very serious about this, which maybe I wasn't, but they just didn't think I had the skills for it. So a couple of years later, I don't think I've been too bad. But for me, when I was in private practice, uh, I was in for private practice, I think about 12, 13 years before mm -hmm. I decided to change. And so for me, it was all about, I enjoyed what I was doing, but I knew there was a calling on my life or something that was greater than what where I currently was. Mm -hmm. The research states that that everybody in their professional field will have five iterations or five versions of what that looks like. So I thought, okay, well, that would make sense. I'm now in the next version or gonna create the next version of what that is. So Gary, I am interested in something that I thought was kind of interesting with my brother, Dan, is yeah. my brother, and obviously I'm biased, is the greatest fisherman, bass fisherman I've ever seen in my life. And I would say probably fisherman. Now I've only fished with you I, less than a few times, so I can't compare. But my brother, Dan is like one of those savants where we'd be out fishing at Lake McBride, let's say, and he would be, I'd be right behind him, you know, this is back, you know, years ago. And he would be catching fish and he, we come up to this big tree area where there'd be, you know, a tree fell down the water and would be a nice habitat area for a large bass. My brother would feel sorry for me. He'd say, well, come up front, Jeff. Here's my pole and go ahead and catch the fish. And you're laughing already. Yeah. So I'm throwing these yeah. jig and pigs and all this other yeah. thing in there. And I'm just getting frustrated and embarrassed. And I'm, you know, Dan's one year younger than me. So we're very competitive. And I'm like, I, I can't, ca and Dan, Dan would say, Jeff, step back. I'd hand him the pole. And with first freaking cast, he would pull out a four or five pound bass every single time and almost the point where was, I, I think he was he was you know subconsciously mocking me like trying to humiliate me but i grew up fishing with dan like that walleye's the same way we could be up in minnesota and canada fishing and dan's walking around the boat all high you know you think i'm intense my brother's as or more especially fishing he just never has an off button so where i'm going with this is this i asked him one time why don't you do this professionally uh-huh i mean literally just make Go, go make a, yeah, exactly. And I think he maybe dabbled in it or, or something. I'm not sure if he ever did. I think his answer was pretty much, you know, Jeff, at that point, it would take the fun out of it for me. Uh -huh. And boy, I thought about that. Not that I have any professional skills. I mean, I can't be a pro golfer because I suck, but, 
But for Dan to say that, I thought that's that's an interesting observation because there's a lot of people in life that are highly talented. My brother Steve's a, again a very gifted musician, and you know he's taken it to the highest level he wants to go, and that's playing for this Elton John tribute band, which is phenomenal. But you know, at some point there becomes a respect for the career you're in that, hey, I don't want to go any further. I, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. Did you ever question your decision to jump in tournament fishing and, and did it ever take the fun out of it for you? Well, yes and no. I, I didn't question the decision mm-hmm. because I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it and that I could compete at that level. And I think I was satisfied, yes, Yes, I did that, and yes, I survived it. And yes, it's a grind. It, it I mean, is, God, uh, you guys would go out and pre-fish for three or four days. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, mostly, yeah, mostly that's pre-fish. Yeah, mostly uh, <laughs> a week to ten days for some people. I just, so th- that that's my son plays competitive college golf, and they play yeah. one practice round. Yep, they don't go in a week before and play seven practice rounds. I right. mean, that's a massive commitment you guys make. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's. <sighs> Sometimes, Jeff, it's almost overwhelming. Yeah. When you think about uh, all of the decisions that you have to make, not only before the tournament, but during the tournament. Right. And, and most of the successful walleye anglers are going to tell you that it was the decisions they made during the tournament day. The adjustments. That, the adjustments. Yeah, because you don't think about that, but a college basketball coach or a football coach at halftime is always making adjustments. Yes. Fishing, you got to do the same thing, right? Yes, you got to do Weather it. changes, exactly. temperature drops. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and if you're going to enter tournament fishing to make money, I'm going to say no. It's, it, it's, 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 it's like the Marines. Many are called, but few are chosen. Hmm. So you've got so few at the top of the walleye game. I think... Uh, if you look at tournament fishing, you mentioned earlier the bass tournaments yeah. and the crappie tournaments and the redfish tournaments. Actually, the bass tournaments have so much more uh, incentive financially mm. for people to fish compared to the walleye. Uh, I know that uh, this year, uh, 2021, will be the second year of a new tournament schedule called Head to Head, mm. where you have a, a walleye person in, in the boat fishing with a uh, photographer, uh, camera person in the back, and you're live streaming. Oh, really? You're live streaming on Facebook, and you're competing with other anglers who have the same setup. Like a split screen type yeah. thing? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's and, cool. And last year, they, they, they ran the tournament for the first time, and it was so successful, they're coming like back. A, like the video games you see where yes. you, can, you can fish video game fishing. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Head Interesting. to head and uh, big entry fee, and it's by invitation only. Yeah, and I don't doubt I will have a lot to talk about because uh, we go back a long ways. Uh, for those that are... Uh, new to this podcast, um, I lost my oldest son, Seth, at the age of 23 from a heroin overdose. Carson was Seth's best friend through high school. And um, if I get a little emotional, I apologize. Um, it's kind of normal for me these stages. but uh, So I wanted to get Carson in here for a lot of reasons, but one was kind of that common bond we had. And I remember coaching you and Seth in, in basketball and, and the battles we had and... Um, at some point during the hour conversation, Carson, I'd like to kind of get your input on maybe from your lens, from your perspective. Uh, I, you know, mine's from the dad perspective, you know, but where, where are you from? Where are you at right now? Where are you living today? 
Um, uh, well, for the last four years, I was in Chicago to, you know, growing the growing the business kind of uh, through there. But when the pandemic hit, I moved back actually to uh, Cedar Rapids. How long have you been back then? A couple of years? Uh, literally since about a, about a year. Okay. Okay. And again, I, I, I mentioned you were an entrepreneur and a CEO and a founder. Uh, and at 27, I think, right? 28, yep, 27? Okay. 27. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this journey that you're on. And I want to definitely talk about fan food. Uh, I've been admiring watching you build this brand. Um, you guys are really good at marketing. Um, you do a super job of putting really good content out there. And Boy, when the pandemic hit, Carson, my heart went out for you. I'm thinking, man, what a what a tough time to be doing what this great idea you have with fan food, delivering, you know, at sporting events, you know, the experience where people can sit in their chairs and 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 watch the game and, and food is literally brought to them. And all of a sudden now you don't have fans in the stadium. And that I'm like, wow, you know, that that's a test of courage. You know, it's your first go at this. And here we, here you go. <laughs> Welcome yeah, to the business right? world. <laughs> like, exactly. It was like, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're, you're like, you feel like you, you you solve one problem, two more arise. You know what I right. mean? And, and when that came up, it was just like, okay, I guess we're going another round in the boxing match because it's <laughs> like, how many punches can one take? I mean, uh, yeah, when the pandemic hit, it was... Uh, I mean, yeah, we, we were forced to get really creative, um, you know, aside from, you know, we had to make a lot of tough decision operationally, right? When your business does rely on large event gatherings and this kind of unforeseen event occurs, like, yes, we had to make a lot of tough decisions to our employee base. But, you know, we, we pivoted into new markets and leveraged our technology to create a new business line that, you know, um, I think in the long run has a lot of potential and, and one that allowed us to keep cash flow coming in. So, um, you know, to survive, survive it, you know, survive it out and come out on the other end. And the platform that we were building, yeah, we were excited about it pre pandemic, but in a post pandemic wor world, um, you know, we, you know, we believe, uh, with mobile ordering that that'll become the, the kind of standard to help, you know, support social distancing initiatives as, as venues do start to reopen. So, you know, those are priceless memories. And I think every family can relate to those. And when you encapsulate that in a song, so beautiful, like the song you wrote, I, every time I hear the song, I tear up, I, I tearing up now. Sorry. I loved writing that song Boulder beach because I just, you know so many great memories and especially with Seth like I whenever I think of Boulder Beach I always think of Seth too because he was he loved that place and so I had to write that song because everyone loved Boulder Beach like the family history there I'm getting I already get choked up every time I talk about it too so back in where I was going with Boulder Beach was that we used to have a talent show oh yeah <laughs> and and that's really the first time I was introduced to this young phenom maddie renner i wrote one of my very first songs on a plate and i ended up singing it at one of the talent shows and ended up winning so i was like hey i must be okay at this so yeah boulder beach talent show was like the america's got talent moment the golden buzzer and with that maddie renner will be playing boulder beach I always wore my yellow cross 
on the Stanley River Road. Summer loving by the docks. Next to my uncle's favorite boat. My mom and grandma drank the coffee. Every sunrise by the lake. My dad would never fail to wake me. With this chocolate chip and cakes. Yeah, you were my summer utopia. From my you would have been a soda.